everybody, and welcome back to the State of Play podcast, episode 58. I'm your host, Martino Puccio. Alongside me this week is Matt Santangelo, once again, at Berisha, still de- dealing with a toothache, so he's out of commission for at least another week. But we would like to welcome in a very special guest this week. This one is primarily based for all of our American listeners, and hell, all the European listeners can hop in on this one too because it's a, it's a great way to get invested in American football, soccer, whatever you want to call it. We have Brian Dunseth in with us. Brian is a former MLS player, current host on SiriusXM, does games for uh, Real Salt Lake here in the MLS. Brian, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. I know I've been a disaster. Uh, it's been a couple weeks coming that I needed to be on with you. But uh, as 2020 goes, we've had – a windstorm with no power at our house for six days somehow threw my neck out and even last night the hill caught on fire above us so I appreciate you having me and I appreciate you uh you working with me and being so flexible so I have the opportunity to join up with you guys yeah, yeah no it's absolutely. great absolutely it's, it's yeah it's 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 been a long time coming I think you know having the sort of conversations when I've hopped on Sirius XM and then jokingly, I know uh, Tony Miola and you would always talk about oh, when are we get to come on your podcast, all those sorts of things. So it's kind of fun to extend that invitation to have you come onto our podcast and, and talk in our neck of the woods about some European stuff. Yes, because obviously we are a, a podcast that does focus on Europe's top five leagues, but also we want to get your expertise um, on, on Major League Soccer, the U.S. Men's National Team, U.S. Soccer in general, and help maybe educate our European audience. And, and even our co-host, Pet, um, who's not here, would, would probably benefit quite a bit from this discussion as well. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm ready to get rolling. I'm very excited for this one. All right. So, Dunny, as you, as you said, you like to be called. We'll just, we'll just roll with that for the rest of the podcast. Obviously, there's so much to cover, and it's very exciting times um, for a lot of American soccer fans, especially after what happened a couple of years ago. And especially for Matt and myself, because we're also Italian-Americans, so it was a very rough time not seeing either USA and <laughs> Italy in the World Cup. Yeah. So, so it's really been a rebirth for both countries. And now we're obviously sticking with the USA. The, the amount of talent that is really coming out um, in the past, you know, 18 months, honestly, like we always knew Pulisic was there. We saw him in the World Cup qualifiers. But now we see Gio Reyna. Uh, come to the forefront. Conrad De La Fuente, uh, obviously someone in the Barca U system, Sergio Serginho Dest. We have um, Anthony Robinson as someone we were discussing prior to uh, the podcast starting. Weston um, McKinney at Juve. Yes, Weston really well debut. can't even forget that. I mean, there's Josh Sargent as well, Tyler Adams um, with Leipzig. There's just so many players now. And we always had names for years with U.S. Uh, men's soccer. And they were always kind of, you know, lingering around in the in the lower leagues of Europe or they returned to MLS a little bit sooner than some people would have liked. But now we have these kids going out there, young ages, developing properly and really making moves to bigger clubs like McKinney and Pulisic did. Like, what what is your overall, you know, feeling and sentiment towards all this? This has to be the most exciting time in a while for U.S. men's soccer, right? Uh, it is because of the size and the stature of the club. Uh, make no mistake about it. I think everybody is cognizant of the opportunities. It seems like the door that has been either slammed shut or just gently shut is now kind of softly creaking open uh, and affording, I think, players opportunities. I, I think for a long time, 
uh, and I was, I was a part of this back in 97 with the U.S. under-20 national team. I think any time at the younger levels, uh, they're from 16 to 20, there's been a, a decent amount of interest from European clubs in the American athlete because of the athleticism, kind of that never-say-die mentality. And then you kind of start to ask questions, well, the technical side, the tactical side, um, are they getting the right education? Growing up in Southern California, man, I had a coach from every country around the world. I think that's one of the most beneficial aspects. I had Italian. I had Dutch. I, I had um, English. I had American. I had Iranian. I, I mean, I, I literally learned so many different African. I had so many different systems that I learned how to play at such a young age. But then you kind of hit that stumbling block. You have this club system dynamic, but then is it high school? Is it kind of the pay-to-play format? Uh, is it ODP? How do you what, – what was there a leak? And not until 1996, you know, people forget MLS is only 25 years of age. So it's the first time we've had a legitimate league that has solidified its foundation and actually every single year uh, continue to grow in the right direction. And I know we'll get into the pros and cons of MLS, but – I think ultimately what we're seeing is um, you're seeing dual nationals with the opportunity or, or sorry, dual nationals or military families with opportunities to have passports that gives them a faster track into Europe, less paperwork, uh, less issues with trying to get work permits. um, And then ultimately kind of continuing to prove that they can play at a high level when put into the right training, I guess, programs and and, and the right players around them. So, yes, excitement, uh, but still I don't want to be naive to think that, hey, just because these players are playing in these great clubs, um, Trinidad and Tobago a couple years ago was a punch in the face, and it was a punch in the face in reality of recognizing we still have a long ways to go. And like every other country around the world, it doesn't matter if you're Italy, it doesn't matter if you're Holland, uh, there's no divine right for your place in a World Cup every four years. Absolutely. I think that was one of the, the biggest takeaways I saw from um, even with the, the Italian national team, but more so with the, the men's national team for, for here in the U.S., is those matches, I think, told us a lot about where they were um, mentally, psychologically in terms of their development and how far along uh, many people thought or the perception that many Americans had of where U.S. soccer was, the U.S. soccer talent was, the average U.S. soccer talent. And in that situation, I mean, you looked at the, the squad was certainly there to make it to a World Cup. Yeah. But the fact that, you know, we always have those sorts of conversations that I see uh, on social media is, and I always find it you know, pretty laughable, is that, well, you know, our best athletes are not playing soccer or you know they're playing basketball or football or baseball whatever and like you know if lebron james was playing soccer or whatever you know this things would be much different and that's that's silly i think there's a ton of untapped potential in this country there's a lot of players that unfortunately for one reason or another maybe don't get the eyes and the the view that you know many others do which of course obviously is one of the big reasons why guys like rainia pulisic um and the like go abroad because i think there's less red tape for them to, to get onto that fast track, as you mentioned, uh, Donnie. So when I look at the kind of the makeup of this squad coming through to, to the, you know, the, the next World Cup, the next big tournaments, I think that the, the quality is there. That's without a question. I mean, you look 
up and down the team. You have, you know, Zach Steffen, who's, you know, owned by Manchester City. You have Tyler Adams, RB Leipzig, playing in, you know, deep into the Champions League. Weston McKenney started for Juventus. The team has won nine Scudetti in a row in Italy. So you look, the, the talent's there. That's not the issue. I think it's overall having the sort of the character, the mentality, the charisma to put those things into effect because I don't think it's ever been so much about the talent not being there rather than just kind of having this sort of approach that is more, more American-like, right? That we see with so many times in, in American sports. So that's what I'm really hopeful um, in this young generation going forward is that the youth can be nurtured. They can be understood in terms of what style of football they want to play or soccer they want to play, but also not have this sort of um, unfair pressure, unfair expectation thrusted upon them to be World Cup champions or make a sure. semifinal run. I think this is a building, uh, this next you know, wave or next couple of years will be building blocks for what we hope to see from the generations to come for U.S. soccer. Yeah, I, I would agree with you 100%. And, and I think, again, like we talk about, there's no divine right to automatically qualify for the World Cup. You got to go through your highs and lows and you know, the guys, the 11 faces on the other side that are fighting for the crest on, on their chest. Um, there, there's, there's also the dynamics of this. And I know we're American, right? We're, we're the best in the world. And we got football. And we're the best in baseball. And we're the best in soccer and, you know, all that stuff. Uh, we're super naive in thinking that just because we, quote, unquote, develop the best super athletes, that all of a sudden that's going to translate. I mean, I was – I turned pro in 1997. And at that point, they had already had so many papers written. And Carlos Quiros, who's the current Columbia manager, uh, wrote this thing called Project 2010. And it was the pathway for the United States to win the World Cup. And I was like, that is such a bunch of bull, you know, I, you know, because you can say it, uh, it's such bullshit. I mean, at the end of the day, there's so much luck that comes into winning a World Cup. I mean, you just think about from, you know, use 2010, the qualifying for the United States down in Honduras when they win 2-0, to literally four days later, Charlie Davies is in a horrific accident and never the same player. Gucci Anyewu against Costa Rica in D.C. ends up shredding his knee when he was just starting to get significant minutes with AC Milan. His career's in a completely different trajectory after that. And then you go into a World Cup with Bob Bradley where Robbie Finley's trying to replicate what Charlie did. Now, there's a, you could say successful 100%, but um, it's, it's from qualifying to the form to the seven months that follow to the, the, the warm ping pong balls that are being chosen to see which group you're in. It's the location. It's the travel. It's the team that's chosen. It's the referees. It's the yellow cards. It's the recoveries. It's the injuries. All of these things have to be kind of this perfect butterfly effect for someone to lift a trophy, to lift a World Cup trophy. So uh, the whole idea is like, oh, this team's going to win the World Cup, I just think is, is such a horseshit dis discussion to have. If you say like, yeah, they have an unbelievable team. They have the, like, the makeup to be competitive and maybe potentially be in the conversation. That's a different thing. But this whole kind of hierarchy conversation is wild to me. Um, to your point about qualifying, my, my fear is I, I hate trying to level this conversation because I don't think it's this world cup. I think it's 2026 where real, uh, where the United States will be prime in terms of this next generation. 
um, because nobody wants to hear that, right? You just missed out on 2018. 2020 in Qatar is going to have its own serious issues because of COVID-19, because of the inexperience in Greg Berhalter's side, and because of the inexperience of Greg Berhalter as a national team manager going through CONCACAF qualifying in a completely different format, even though he went through it as a player. Um, the, other, the other part of this is I, I think, you know, bigger picture, the inability to qualify for the Olympics. You're, you're dominant in the 17s with Mexico. You're dominant in the under-20s with Mexico. But yet you failed in three of the last four Olympic qualifying phases. My, my phase in 2000 went to the bronze medal match. That was like a Josh Wolf. It was a, a Johnny O'Brien. It was a Frankie Hayduk. It was a Brad Friedel. Um, you know, it was, it was those type of players. Benny Olsen. The 2004 version, Landon Donovan, DeMarcus Beasley, Bobby Convey, all those guys, they didn't qualify. 2000, wait, I'm off. 2004. Yeah, so 2008 was Michael Bradley, Josie Altidore, that whole group. And that's the group we've been riding for years. And because of the inability to qualify for the under-23 Olympic age group, we've lost essentially a 10-year gap, a 12-year gap, a generational gap of players that are battle-tested and experienced in their age group to make the jump into the World Cup squad. And whether you want to put it on, you know, I don't think you put it on Bob Bradley. If you want to put it on Jurgen Klinsmann, that's fine. But guys like Michael Bradley, guys like Jermaine Jones, guys like Kyle Beckerman, guys like Josie Altidore, guys like Timmy Howard, they weren't just going to give up their position. And they were better than that last generation behind them. And I think that's one of the things that we felt short down in Trinidad and Tobago. People put it on Bruce all the time. I don't put it on Bruce. I put it on there's a generational gap of quality players that were experienced enough to go to Trinidad and recognize that the shot heard around the world in 1989 still live true to this current crop of players. And on the night, goalkeeper standing on his head, uh, a, a reserve right back scoring from 35 yards out, and an inability to just draw at Trinidad doomed them from representing the United States at the World Cup. So, yeah, I think there's just so many layers to the conversation, which, again, now leads into this crop of players playing at such a high level in their domestic individual campaigns, but still has to beat a Honduras, a Costa Rica, a Panama, a Mexico, mm-hmm. a Jamaica, a Trinidad, Tobago, a Canada, which should sound easy enough, but as we learned last qualifying round, um, could pose its own set of problems and circumstances. Yeah, these these other these other nations, you, you know, even you mentioned Trinidad and Tobago, um, and I even look at some of the other smaller, um, in comparison to some of the other smaller nations in Europe, right? I mean, you look at the Iceland's and yeah. some of these other nations, and they don't have a fraction of the amount of, of the population that the U.S. has. But you look at them, and they just they just seem to have that sort of edge to them, that like approach where we're already underdogs. We embracing this sort of underdog mentality, but they have this sort of character. They have this sort of approach. They have, to your point, the experience um, in. In, in playing against some of these clubs and they know what their identity is. And I yeah. think the identity is going to be a very key factor for the U S men's national team to focus on, because as you mentioned, Donnie, there's a lot of the older guard that it's kind of on its way out. Yes. Some of them will have um, 
or will play a role in the upcoming qualification phases and all those sorts of things. But it's going to be very important to have those sort of elder statesmen, those guys, those guardian type players to take these younger players under the wing and to avoid the sort of, um, you know, disappointment and, and, and heartache and nightmare that we experienced a handful of years ago. But um, before we move on to some of the other, you know, main topics, you know, into Miami, what they're doing and some of the questions, I, I wanted to kind of go back a little bit towards some of the top younger, top young players that, uh, that are coming through the system, whether it be here domestically in the U.S. or abroad, which obviously we, we, we're quite familiar now with uh, Rainia, Pulisic, and, and, and many others. But I want to talk about Conrad De La Fuente because there's a lot of buzz around his name heading into the season as a Barcelona youth product. Um, obviously, a, a young, I think, 18 or 19-year-old U.S. international. And everyone's looking at it. When you're playing for Barcelona, you're playing in their academy, you're not necessarily maybe developed there from a very early age. There's got to be something to you that stands out if you can get into that sort of um, La Masia, you know, format that they got here. So um, I guess tell, tell us what you know about him. It could be a lot, it could be uh, very little. Um, and ultimately what, the, what your perception of his going forward can be um, in terms of uh, uh, following that sort of trajectory as the Pulisics, the Rainias, with those bright futures ahead of them. Yeah, I, w- I would say so Conrad – Still young, still dynamic, uh, yet to turn even 20 years of age. And the fact that he's coming through La Masia um, is is a testament to his mentality and his ability to start with, um, especially because, you know, he, he's a young man that was born in Florida uh, mm-hmm. and, and made the jump over there to Barcelona. I mean, he, he went young, right? He was only, I think he was like nine or ten. Uh, American kid born to Haitian parents um, and his dad, I believe the story was his dad took a job in the Haitian consulate in Barcelona. Um, And that's where this all kind of started playing in a local team, got identified from Barcelona and then invited to be a part of kind of this Barcelona B side. Um, A kid that from 2000, I think like 15, 16 was a part of, the U15s, U16s, U17s, U18s, and then uh, was a part of Tab Ramos's under-20 national team squad uh, for the World Cup in Poland. Um, and he was a part of every starting 11. And this was a, a fun, group of, fun group to watch because it was kind of that next generation of what is it going to look like? Who is going to, um, you know, be involved? Is it going to be? a Timothy Weah and De La Fuente-led team? Is it pa- Paxton Pomacall from the United States? So it was, it was kind of fun to see what this next generation was going to look like because everybody was talking about that group of tab, Tab's team was really, really good. But there's another group coming right behind them, and that's Gio Reyna's side that's just as good, if not better, top to bottom in terms of the squad. So for, for Conrad... Uh, wide right, wide left, it doesn't really matter. I see him more on the, on the right than the left. Uh, very technical, smaller in stature. You know, we're talking about got to be the best and the strongest and the fastest in America. The kid's like 5'7", and he flies, right? So um, to see him get his games with Barcelona B, to start to be included in training matches, and then ultimately be one of the beneficiaries of the turnover of Ronald Koeman, uh, taking over at Barcelona, and then inevitably to be a part of the first stream squad when we're hearing players like Ricky Pooch uh, being told that, hey, maybe he should go out on loan. Um, yeah, excited, excited. And 
And also it's the American side, right? Oh, uh, we got we got to exalt this next player as the next best thing. The the Freddie Adu syndrome from back in the day, because Freddie Adu was supposed to be Carlos Vela, was supposed to be uh Lionel Messi, was supposed to be Sergio Aguero, and he turned out unfortunately just to be Freddie Adu. So yeah, it, exciting for Conrad de la Fuente. Obviously, the amount of minutes, uh, the inclusion, the substitution pattern, uh, all of that is important in this early phase of the season to see what that means for him uh, in terms of kind of the complete year underneath Ronald Koeman, if he even lasts that long. Yeah, it's, it's definitely going to be exciting. Um, at the very least, it's a great youth experience for Conrad, so we'll see where that takes him. Uh, in his future hopefully uh, no one adds so much pressure I think it definitely helps when there's a lot of other top youths that are being successful it kind of takes the load off of his shoulders a little bit and that's what I wanted to get to real quick um, before we have to go to our athletic plug here but <clears throat> two, two players I want to discuss because I think they, they are probably the two most massive moves and taking in the next step for the national team is Gio Reina and Dest We'll start with Gio first. So Gio, obviously, we know how young he is. Taking a similar path to Pulisic, going to Dortmund, Bundesliga, gaining that experience like many others have so far. For me, it's one thing to be getting minutes with a club like Dortmund and all the youthful talent that they have, but it's another thing to be producing almost immediately. And that's something he's doing. And it's honestly so impressive, Dunny. And... But before I get to the desk part, um, for you, Gio, Gio's progression, what do you what do you attest it to? Like, is it from his father, obviously, being a former professional? Is it just Dortmund? Is it just his pure talent? There has to be so many different factors as to why it's been a success so far. I think, so, too, with, with Rainier, real quick, you know, he's, he's his uh, – if anyone missed it, there was a great um, – uh, segment or story on Giorena on ESPN about his his story, his his family, his 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 brother who who, who passed away. But I'm sure, uh, Donnie, you can kind of maybe elaborate more on maybe why those sorts of things and his togetherness with his family. Obviously, we all know the Rania Rania name, but maybe how that's attributed to his towards his growth and his confidence in himself to to get to the next level. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because I was going to bring it up too. Um, so it's not just it's not just his father Claudio Reyna, who, in my opinion, was arguably the best pure number ten the United States has, has ever had. And by the way, size and stature wise, two completely different body body types. Uh, Claudio was like five nine, five ten, but just broad shouldered and kind of strong and stocky, whereas Gio's obviously tall and lean. Uh, Gio's mom played soccer at UVA as well. She she was a high level soccer player. So it is in his genes. Uh, and then kind of you, you told on the, the just devastating story about how his older brother passed away and, and being his, his biggest supporter and what that meant for the family. And you talk, about, you talk about mentality and toughness and strength and devastation through all of that um, as, a, as a family and how he kind of turned that into um, – I don't want to say it's a positive because I don't think that's the right way, but made the most out of really uh, a horrifying family situation to lose your older, your older brother, um, to lose their oldest son. So from Gio's involvement, becoming aware, I'd heard whispers, this kid, like 13, 14, 15, man, you won't believe this kid. 
and then kind of watching him with the NYCFC Academy, that whole group of players, uh, that team that won the, uh, the Generation Adidas Cup or whatever they were calling it. Um, there was like three or four guys that I thought, wow, if they continue to develop, they're, they're going to be good enough. But then the weird dynamic of Gio being NYCFC and his dad being the, the general manager, and then that moment in time. And th- there's a unique dynamic, by the way, and, and I don't want to, we don't have to get too far into the weeds, but this is one of the major problems with um, the development academies in the United States that are s- tied and structured with MLS teams. You can sign any contract before the age of 18. That's fine. And become a professional and, and get paid. But you can terminate that contract before your 18th birthday because of U.S. child labor laws. And you can then sign a new contract when you're 18 over in Europe. Um, so there's that interesting dynamic. Or you can just leave. You can leave an academy at any point uh, and go over and sign with Europe. And, and, and that's what Gio did. Um, Gio being born in Europe because of Claudio's time over at Bayer Leverkusen, at Wolfsburg, uh, at Glasgow Rangers, at Sunderland, at Man City. Uh, he was born in Europe, so he's, he's got the passport. He's in. He didn't have to kind of apply for Croatian citizenship like Pulisic did and go kind of heritage. So he got there early, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's a benefit to be in the system. And if you've read any of those articles, whether it be on ESPN FC or whether it be on The Athletic, uh, everybody at Dortmund knew immediately in his first couple of training sessions with the 19s that, all right, he'll get acclimated, he'll learn the language, but he's he's going to be with the first team. Uh, and and much like Christian taking advantage of the winter break uh, in the Middle East to then prove that he deserves minutes. And getting minutes is one thing, but as you guys said, starting this year, Erling Holland being the 10, being uh, a beneficiary of a Marco Royce injury, a Mario Goza. Uh, departing of the club and as I've always said the hardest part for young players is statistics that production number because that's what it comes down to goals and assists and can you produce if it's secondary assists then so be it but he definitely has passed the eyeball test uh, and he's not only provider but he's finisher Um, and I absolutely think he's the pure number 10 that the United States has been missing in that playmaking role for a long, long time and alleviates the pressure of Christian Pulisic having to play the 10 when he's so much more dominant and better as a wide attacking player for both club and country. Yeah. Um, look, it's, it's obviously so exciting to just see players like this um, at well-known clubs too, because they're going to all these great academies and another player that we mentioned just before um, we were talking about Urania is Dest and now, his, his situation is getting pretty interesting. Um, obviously, we know the two names heavily linked with him are Bayern and Barcelona. And traditionally, if we're talking about, what, like five years ago, it would have been a very tough choice to make. Yeah. But as we sit here in 2020, after seeing everything transpire within, what, the past six weeks or so, it's a totally different conversation, Donnie. And for me not only just as a Team USA fan, just just in general, like if you were to just play devil's advocate for where you think this player should go, I think it 100% should be Bayern Munich, and there shouldn't be any second questions about it, right? 
So I'm going to take you in a different direction. And not that okay. I disagree with you, but it's kind of food for thought because I've, I've been thinking about this and having conversations with people. First off, I would say that I don't think Sergio Dest needs to leave. He is mm-hmm. at a, a club that in terms of development, in terms of structure, um, in terms of success, is mm-hmm. at the very top of the conversation in Holland. On top of that, immediate qualification for Champions League puts him in an ideal situation. Now, if we want to judge the merits of the strength of the league, then obviously when we're talking about the Bundesliga or we're talking about La Liga, that's a huge step forward. Um, So I would say in terms of development, because I I would want to make the argument that Alfonso Davies should leave Bayern Munich and potentially go to Barcelona or Real Madrid in this summer window, (laughs) because if we're talking about kind of that next step up, but then you think about, the, the situation that the player is in and would he get the same, the same type of, does he have to go now? Does it make sense? My fear for Serginho Dest, and I, and I, and I probably had low level feel, feel, fear, excuse me. God, that was a tongue twister. Um, on Weston McKinney too is, uh, is he going to go into a situation, Zach Steffen, is he going to go into a situation where he's going to play significant minutes? Is he going to continue mm-hmm. to develop or is he just going to a huge club get a huge pay jump, and then just get reserve games and training sessions. Um, Because I think there's always the argument of what's right for each individual player. If Serginho chooses to go to Bayern Munich, obviously pay scale, he's going to jump tremendously, right? He's going to be in that 40 to 50 grand a week conversation immediately, probably up from 10 to 15 at Ajax. Benjamin Pavard, Joshua Kimmich, uh, whatever other young players coming through the Bayern Munich system, there's competition for spots immediately. But he's going to go to a team that's going to play in multiple competitions. He's going to be in Champions League. He's going to compete for Champions League titles. Mm-hmm. And he's going to win at least the domestic double because I can't see anybody. Well, maybe the, the DFB Pokal is a different animal. But I, I can't see anybody really competing with Bayern Munich with the, with the quality and depth that they currently have and this regeneration of young player. Now, if he goes to Barcelona – Here's the interesting thing. Uh, Nelson Semedo being sold to Wolves. So it's really Sergio Roberto. Uh, obviously the same La Masia conversation that we'll have at Bayern, at Bayern Munich in terms of what generational young right back is potentially there. But I, I look at Ronald Koeman. He knows him. He turned him down for the Dutch national team. We're seeing this kind of re-Dutch evolution at Bayern. If they had money, I would have thought that Memphis Depay would already be through the door. Can't believe I'm saying that as a Manchester United fan after <laughs> what he was underneath Louis van Gaal. Um, and so I look at competition, and I got to be honest with you, I think either team is a great situation for him because of the focus on youth. Um, and I look at just Barcelona, the Dutch, Cruyff mentality, and I think that with Ronald Koeman, it might be an easier step than it would be to go to Bayern Munich. But I, but I, I definitely I, understand both the clubs, and it's definitely a, a huge length for the young player, no matter what. I, I, yeah, I, I definitely see, a, see both sides of this, too. You know, it's when you be, I think people are going to look at Davies and think, well, you know, he came from Vancouver Whitecaps yeah. uh, as a young teenager. And, you know, obviously, at the time, it was an MLS record fee. And I don't think anyone expected or anticipated 
this sort of you know, meteoric and sudden rise, right, to being a, a young, talented player that Bayern Munich had under, under control, to being one of the top at his position in world football in seemingly one season. Yeah. Now, there's by going to Bayern Munich in a hypothetical situation, most people would say, well, you know, you have one guy, you have the, 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 the North American dynamic, right? You have Alfonso Davies, who's, who's a stud. He's one of the top at his position, as I mentioned. And then everyone's going to kind of lean towards Dest to kind of replicate that and do the same thing, which is going to put a lot of pressure on him. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. I think if he stays at Ajax, you know, even if it's another one or two seasons, I mean, they have a proven record of being able to nurture young talent and ease it along um, where they can get to the, the proper uh, next tier, right? And they do it in such a graceful way. I think everyone was kind of pl- applauding them how they handled the Van de Beek situation, right? They always yeah. kind of send their players off with that expectation that they know one day they're going to have to let the kids go, right? It's like when kids, their parents have to let the kids go off to college in a way, right? Because they kind of grow through the system. They're nurtured with the whole philosophy of Ajax. And then eventually when they're like 22, 23, 24, there's always that big move that always lurking. So I, I think he could totally benefit from another season or two. As you mentioned, he's going to be competing at one of the top clubs, a, a great environment for young players to grow. He's got that Champions League experience under his belt. So there's really no worry there. And I think there's always the sort of perception that people have is, oh, well, he's very good. He's playing at a young, at a, at a, he's very good, very young. And he's playing at a team that's more on the smaller side in terms of what they're competing for. So let's have him move on because he's already outgrown his environment. Yeah. And I think that's what people have to be a little bit careful of with this. But uh, never, nevertheless, I think it's, if you're a U.S. soccer fan, it's a wonderful conversation to have that you have so many young players linked with such big clubs and they're going to be eventually getting <laughs> to those positions where they're going to be that much more um, develop, developing, yes, but also getting that much more mainstream, which of course is something that, you know, if you're a young kid in this country looking at it, it's can really bode well for you and at least motivate you to maybe you know, consider taking that next step and pushing on to play soccer or football over some of the other bigger sports. Yeah. And, and I would also say that one size doesn't fit all. Um, one of the things that I've learned for, uh, and, and I learned this in real time, um, there are a lot of guys, a lot of players, a lot of young players that are very, very, very good but they don't have the mentality to survive by themselves. Uh, and, and I saw it up close with a bunch of people. And probably Landon Donovan is like the easiest example. Uh, hey, he was over in Europe. He was at Bayer Leverkusen. Why would he come back? Why would he be comfortable living at the beach in LA and playing in MLS? And, you know, why would he only do the short-term loans to Bayern Munich or to Everton? Why wouldn't he just stay? He's got the best opportunity. And then you kind of have the Michael Bradley, right, that leaves New York and, and, and goes to Herrenveen, and then the success uh, went to Mönchengladbach, uh, a cup of coffee with Villa. Uh, then he went over to Italy, uh, and ultimately, after a first fantastic year, moving to Roma, even though uh, he ends up coming back and making his $6 million a year in the United States, And which, side note, I wanted him to stay at Roma and kind of fight through all of that and be in the Champions League at the time because I thought it was good for kind of the, the U.S. perspective. But I think there's a new mentality – And the new mentality also ties into social media. I think the sharing of social media and watching these young players share their lifestyles over in Europe. And honestly, I was at Bayer Leverkusen. I was at Glasgow Rangers for four months. I was at Bayer Leverkusen for five months. Um, And this is back in, in 98, 99, 97, 98, 99. There was no technology. You, you didn't, it was a telephone, right? So girlfriend cheated on you while you're stuck. 
Uh, grandparents die. Well, you're, you're still there. Missing weddings, missing, missing birthdays, missing holidays. You were by yourself in a foreign country with a different language. The, those nights when you're by yourself in your home are completely different than being on the field and playing. So the psychological part was really difficult. Now it's so much easier, the communication, um, you know, being able to watch television, learn the language quicker, uh, being able to Zoom back, or, you know, whatever with your parents. It's an easier time, but still there's a mentality that these young players are succeeding that have. And I think that's got to be celebrated as much as their performances on the field. Because a lot of times you'll see guys go over there and they'll be light years, more, more talent in their pinky toe than other players. And, and this is, by the way, this is Italians going to England. This is England players going to Italy. This is, you know, Swedes going to Holland. The, the culture changes, and it's not always the player's ability to adapt that signifies success or failure on the field. Yeah, and I even just real quick before we go, we go to this plug here, that was something that was highlighted in All or Nothing uh, with Spurs. Yeah. And guy uh, Nundembele, they were talking about how he was struggling to adapt and yep. how it's really just completely outside of the football aspect, the soccer aspect of it. There's so much you have to adapt to. So they were talking about how I got to take time. So it's a great point, and it's amazing insight that uh, you gave to us. So before we uh, continue here, we have to let you guys know that we are sponsored by The Athletic. It's a subscription-based sports news site delivering in-depth sports coverage. Featuring football writers you know and love like David Ornstein, James Pierce, Sam Lee, and more. The Athletic is telling stories you won't find anywhere else. No ads or clickbait, just great sports writing. For 40% off your annual subscription to the best sports writing in the world, Matt, as we all know, go to theathletic.co.uk slash SOP. It's just around um, $2.50 a month if uh, you're over here in the United States. It's amazing writing. Um Look, for all sports, too. We talk about it all the time. You don't even have to just love soccer, football. They have everything that you need. And it is um, the, probably the greatest sports time of the year, as always, right around in the fall, where we get everything possible to, to watch and read about. So we only have about, what, about 10 days or so left in this um, transfer window, a little under two weeks. So it's definitely something exciting. So sign up for The Athletic using that code. Um, yeah, so – where to next, Matt? Okay, so let's let's kind of shift gears and go back towards Major League Soccer. I know we kind of had a really deep dive and focus on uh, some of the brighter prospects and young talents of um, you know with the, with U.S. roots playing abroad. We want to bring it back to MLS. We obviously know you have that experience there, Dunny. Um, you know, both as a, as a as a former pro, but also covering it with Real Salt Lake. And with this one, we want to talk about what's being built or constructed um, in year one. Uh, under David Beckham, of course, for those unfamiliar, uh, with his deal to the LA Galaxy some years ago, um, he had a sort of uh, rights or the opportunity afforded to him um, as per his contract to pretty much get an expansion side and you know, build it from the ground up. And sure enough, what very few places better than uh, Miami to take his to take his talents, right? And into Miami, debut season, they're building a, a wonderful stadium. And they're making a couple splash signings. Uh, most recently, they... Uh, brought in Gonzalo Higuain to join with Blas Matuidi. Of course, Matuidi and Beckham both played at PSG um, a handful of years ago together. Now they've come a full circle. They're reuniting. And the addition of, obviously, Higuain is huge. We know that Juve wanted to get rid of him. But for, more, for one reason or another, I think that he's still very much an effective player who can light up Major League Soccer and, and produce a, a ton of goals for Inter-Miami, which is 
typically the route I think most expansion teams go, right? You want to have that player who, yes, is skillful. Yes, has that sort of pedigree playing abroad and that experience overall at winning at certain big clubs, but also the individuals who can score goals. So, Donnie, give me your thoughts on what's being constructed and built with Dave, by David Beckham with these two signings and what can you ultimately look forward to in the future as they try and follow maybe um, that newer model of being an expansion side? Well, I got to be honest with you. I was disappointed uh, with the way, not the way the roster was built. I was disappointed in the fact that David Beckham's Rolodex did not afford inter Miami CF to start the season with kind of the, the pomp and circumstance that I would expect a David Beckham Rolodex to open up. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that, especially in an Adidas-driven league, that there would have been ways to, you know, to, to get the big names over the line. And, and the big names, you know, Hamas was linked to him. David Silva was linked to him. Edison Cavani. Yeah, Cavani wanted his 10 mil. He's still looking for his 10 mil somewhere. Um, <laughs> it, uh, you know, it was just weird. And, and not that Rodolfo Pizarro isn't a good player. I think Rodolfo Pizarro is a really good player. If you're, if you're a U.S. fan, he, just, he was a part of that team that just rolled uh, the United States for Tata Martino in Mexico. Um, and an unbelievable amount of success for Monterrey. So it was, it was, I was a eh type of, of roster. And the way they were playing, they were competitive, but, you know, there was nothing visually that I was seeing from Diego Alonso's side. And then you add Matuidi. And, you know, there's no salary cap in Major League Soccer. There, there's, a, there's a salary budget, but nobody really talks about image rights and all the other fun stuff that comes into play. Uh, and we just think, well, they're kind of on the Zlatan type of deal his first year. Blaise Matuidi and the amount of ground that he covers, his technical ability, uh, his intelligence – is nothing short of incredible. And you could see that the moment that he started in Major League Soccer. And let's be honest, it's a step down from Juve. Um, then you get Higuain. And I know Luis Suarez was linked, and I would have chosen Higuain just because if you're going to give a two- to three-year contract, do you really want to worry about the knee issues that Luis Suarez has been having the last couple of years? Uh, but obviously, concern about Higuain was – Hey, amount of games, goal scoring clip, uh, the weight issue, Ameritio Sadi, was he using him the right way? Was he not using him the right way? Does it even matter? Um, I think, and by the way, that picture of Iguain at the airport with Jorge Mas was arguably the fittest that I've seen him in a long, long time. I know he was rocking jorts and a tight t-shirt, but he looked fit. <laughs> um, and, and I just think the people are saying like he's past his prime. Didier Drogba, was quote-unquote past his prime, and he had 13 goals in 13 games. Zlatan Ibrahimovic had 51 goals in 52 matches. Wayne Rooney, Nani, Thierry Henry, the quality is still there. Pepita Higuain is going to roll defenders. People don't realize how quick he is, how strong he is. Uh, He's going to put himself in great spots. And I think in the calendar year, when we look back at next season this time, he'll easily have had 20 goals underneath his belt. So – I think a good team uh, – sorry, two really good players that with Rodolfo Pizarro will be able to do some good things. They're not contenders for an MLS Cup championship. I think that roster depth needs to be built and cultivated, um, but much better feeling about Inter-Miami now than what I did two and a half weeks ago. Yeah, very interesting stuff. I agree with you. I think you know maybe it's partially because of the times and the fact that when the league – kicked off that maybe 
you know, a David Beckham run club or, or franchise, whatever you guys want to label it, didn't get that sort of fanfare, that big buzz that maybe you would have expected. But in any case, I think it's going to take some time. It's going to take ultimately um, a couple seasons for them to grow in the direction where they maybe can become Atlanta United, um, someone like an LAFC where, you know, eventually they get the big names, they get the sort of the backing, the fans can kind of flock into the stadium, which will be very exciting for them if you have um, that, that opportunity. But Let's quickly get some of these questions in before we wrap up here, Donny. Um, the first one comes from Roberto Grosso at rgrosso84 on Twitter. He asks, which goalkeeper does he con- does does you do you consider the most underrated in Major League Soccer? And is there any young goalkeeper he you think is primed to break out in the league? Hmm. Let's see. I I, I would say let me start with I think that David Ochoa, who is currently with Real Salt Lake. He was a goalkeeper on that Conrad de la Puente, Timothy Weah side in Poland with Tab Ramos. He would have been the starting goalkeeper for the U.S. under-23 team that was trying to qualify in CONCACAF down in Guadalajara when COVID shut down. He's eligible for another under-20 World Cup. And I've been told Tata Martino is actively trying to get him to play for the Mexican full national team. Uh, he is currently in the U.S. setup. I think he will be the starting goalkeeper for Real Salt Lake at the end of the year. And I think out of all of the young goalkeepers coming through the system, David Ochoa will be, if he continues on the path that I think he can get on, I think he'll be the starting goalkeeper for the U.S. men's national team uh, here in the next cycle for 2026. I would also say he's kind of a Dennis Rodman type. He's got kind of the shits and giggles in his game where he'll do the cut and the flyby, but he'll blow kisses to the fans. He'll like wind up and talk trash to the opponent. So he's got like a little bit of the flair for the game as well. That'll irritate the shit out of opponents, but us fans will absolutely love. So yeah, I would say he's, he for me is absolutely the upcoming goalkeeper that I think everybody should pay attention to. Um, current under, let's see, currently underrated MLS goalkeeper. Uh, I think they're all kind of established, right? Stefan Fry, Sean Johnson, Luis Robles, Bill Hamid, Brad Gazan, Steve Clark, all of those. I would say maybe Quentin Westberg up in Toronto, just because I feel like the dude's 5'7", sopping wet. He's got, like, this Jurgen Klopp jaw thing that happens when he starts yelling. Um, and he's got kind of that, that pseudo faux hawk kind of, like, I feel like he's got, like, an unfiltered cigarette in the locker room afterwards, a la my man uh, Walter Zenga, who I got to play with in my first professional soccer career season up at the New England Revolution. So, yeah, I'll go with, with Westberg or maybe a Matt Turner. Those would probably be more of the underrated type of goalkeepers for me currently in MLS. All right. Um, Yeah, so I have a goalkeeper question too, just to uh, piggyback off of that. And this has to do with uh, U.S. men's national team keeper, Zach Steffen. So obviously it was highlighted that he made the big move to Manchester City, but we all know who Ederson is and what he's capable of. Yeah. He's staying. He's 25 years of age. He's as old as the new MLS. Um and myself to me when I saw this news 
it told me it, it told me a couple of things. One, it, it got me confused of where his ambitions are for his career, and two, it made me really wonder how much he could really get out of it, right? Sure. Because we know the amount of matches that they play over in England between the Carabao Cup, the FA Cup, obviously the Premier League, and obviously this condensed schedule due to COVID this year, there's going to be an opportunity for him. But at the end of the day, is it the best opportunity for him? Because I'm not entirely sure that's true because at the end of the day, if you have a guy that you hope or if he hopes to be the national team starter, he's got to be starting on, on a team. He can't be a backup to a goalkeeper. And I understand It's a great experience to be at a club like Manchester City and be in the competitions that they're in. But at the end of the day, he needs to grow a lot more because 25 isn't young in terms of this sport, right? You need to be headed towards your prime right now, if not be in it. And being a backup goalkeeper, albeit Manchester City, doesn't sound like the greatest move. So it most definitely is one of those, I think, that can be argued um, either way. And, and by that, I mean, goalkeepers are a unique animal because they're, the, the longevity of their career is um, obviously much, much longer than kind of the, the, the realistic field player, if you will, right? I mean, it's, you're looking at guys that usually are talking about hitting their prime somewhere in – I don't know, 28, 29, 30 age gap. And then then look at guys like Gigi Buffon who are able to kind of push it into their 40s. So I, well, while I agree with you in terms of the concern, um, here's where I fall in line. A young man who went to Freiburg in Germany, got some games, got experience, got a language down, was in a day-to-day high-intensity environment went to Columbus Crew, established himself as the current number one for the U.S. men's national team with a Tim Howard retiring and then battling with a, a Brad Guzan to figure out who's the number one. To then be signed by Man City and to be sent out on loan and get the amount of experience he had with a Fortuna Dusseldorf side that was constantly under pressure was a great, was a great loan move. And then picking up that long-term injury that kept him out for the better part of four and a half, five months. So he goes to Man City, and it's the exact concern that I have. Okay, Ederson's not going anywhere, right? So then I start thinking about it. Well, Claudio Bravo last year got anywhere from 15 to 20 matches. I start thinking about the longevity of the season. And while you're talking about mainly EFL Cup matches, FA Cup matches, would he get maybe a, a, a Gummy Bear Cup? Um, uh, would he get a Champions League game for maybe one of the, the shittier teams that Man City will come up against? And especially because of this COVID-tight season where there's essentially it feels like there's two to three games every seven to nine days, is he going to get his chance? And oh, by the way, Ederson is probably the most aggressive goalkeeper in the world coming off his line outside of Manuel Neuer, but seems to get caught with his hand in the cookie jar more often than Manuel Neuer does. So I think in a year like this, being in that environment isn't a bad thing. I think if you're going to say his 25 to 26-year-old career was getting 15 to 20 games at Man City backing up Ederson, 
I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I know people talk about form, but people also don't talk about the amount of games he'd be getting with the under 21 side, the under 23s essentially at Man City. So I can, I can, I guess what I'm saying is while I share the same concern, I can talk myself into this being a good experience for a single season for Zach Steffen and wondering more what looks like next year's decision. Um, because yes, it's the same conversation I had with Sergio Aguero being, or Sergio um, being the number one for Argentina, yet backing up David De Gea at Manchester United for the past, past couple of seasons. You know, what, what is ultimately the ambition? Is the ambition to be a number one or is the ambition to collect the paycheck and be the backup? And I think when you have an established goalkeeper like Ederson as the number one, it's easier to question his ambition than it is questioning the year's worth of experience at Man City. And I think, too, before we wrap up, you know, with goalkeepers, it's a little bit of a different case, right? I think the, the shelf life is a little bit longer than most outfield players, right? I think For sure. a lot of the prime is a little bit more expanded, right? Because you see so many keepers, like even Neuer this year, um, in previous episodes, we talked about how there are some people writing Neuer off, and then he had a, such a marvelous season, and it pretty much was back to being amongst the top three in the world. So I think you while I understand both sides of the argument, I think there's certainly the opportunity for in the next couple of years for Stefan to get more reps, to grow, and then eventually maybe at 27, 28, you'll kind of enter his prime years, which obviously will be something that the, the national team will have to look at as, you know, Guzan gets up there in age and they need to kind of find his successor and the next guy to, to, to bring along to start for them. But Donny, I think we're going to wrap it up there. It's been a blast having you on for this episode to talk all things U.S. soccer, MLS, and, um, you know, give us a little bit of your background and story uh, as a, from, from a former pro's perspective. Where can pe- people find you? And I guess tell uh, the audience what you are, what, what you have coming for you. Yeah. So the socials, just my name at Brian Dunseth on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, in terms of our show every day, Sirius XM FC channel 157, 4 PM Eastern to 7 PM Eastern. It's a show called counterattack. I'm with Tony Miola, who I call big old meat claws uh, for his bare hands. Um, and by the way, his Twitter's been hacked. Crazy. He's not. He can't. He can't even answer. He can barely answer text messages. And now his Twitter's been hacked. So he's ruined for the week. Uh, but yeah, that's that. And calling RSL games on the weekend on ESPN Plus or ESPN games during the playoffs. And yeah, just talking soccer ball, having fun, and hustling like you guys. So I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah. No, a, where can, uh, yeah, yeah. where can people find you? Yeah, they can follow me at Martino Puccio on Twitter. Obviously, we do the State of Play podcast here. We're going to record a soccer showdown episode tonight to recap uh, Milan's uh, opening day win yesterday and then preview the Europa League match um, on Thursday. Lovely that they still haven't figured out where the game's going to be airing, so that's fantastic. Um, <laughs> typical European stuff. Um, so, so there's that. And then, obviously, the YouTube channel with all the stuff that we do as well with State of Play also sponsored by The Athletic, who, again, we would like to thank. Um, and then, Matt, you plug yourself. Sure. You guys can follow me on Twitter at Matt underscore Santangelo. Thank you guys all for the support. And we uh, look forward to having you, about, having you back on soon, Donnie. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it.